This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. If you're waiting for elective surgery, be prepared for a long wait. It'll take more than a year and a half to clear the backlog of operations that were postponed because of the pandemic. That's the conclusion of a new study published in the Canadian Medical Journal. It found, <clears throat> excuse me, the province had a backlog of nearly 150,000 operations between March and June of this year. If hospitals added 717 patients a week to the roughly 11,000 surgeries they typically performed before the pandemic, it would take 84 weeks to clear the backlog. And that is more than a bunch of numbers. For instance, people waiting for joint replacements are often waiting in pain. They can't perform their normal activities, and it can also lead to depression. There are also more serious surgeries, cancer-related surgeries, cardiac surgeries that have been postponed. Uh, we would definitely like to hear from you if that is your situation or a loved one waiting for some elective surgery or if you recently got one. The numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by Dr. Shaf Kashavji, Director of the Toronto Lung Transplant Program and Surgeon-in-Chief at the University Health Network, and Dr. Janet Martin, an Associate Professor at the Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry at Western University, and she's been involved with a global team of researchers looking into this around the world. Thank you both for joining us, and welcome. Thank you, Libby, for inviting us. Janet, are you there? I'm here, too. Thanks so much for the invitation. Okay. Thank you for being here. Let's start with Dr. Kashavji, and I talked to you about this. Uh, I don't exactly remember when, probably a couple of months back. So does this study confirm what you were thinking the impact would be? Um, yes, it does, because um, the, the modeling that they've used in this study was exactly based on what we were doing and predicted at UHN. Uh, and, you know, uh, trying to figure out how are we going to solve this problem with with the backlog. And I think what's really important for people to note is that in dealing with the backlog, the urgent cases like cancer and cardiac surgery uh, were dealt with um, more in real time with some slight delays, but, but not uh, a lot. And I think that that uh, is really important. And what has happened is the less, uh, if you would, would urgent surgeries got delayed further. And that's the backlog calculation, which, uh, this paper says if, if we only add a little bit more extra capacity, it's going to be over 80 weeks before you can catch up. 
Dr. Martin, uh, you're involved in a global study. So how do we compare to other countries, other Western countries in, in terms of postponed surgery? Yeah, so we, as the um, COVID Surge Collaborative, took a look at a, the very same question. So how many elective surgeries were canceled or deferred during a 12-week peak COVID shutdown period? And we looked at this over 190 countries around the world and modeled to, to estimate if, you know, if we have these rates of cancellation, how many surgeries will actually be canceled or delayed? And then what would be the amount of time required in order to catch up? And it's interesting because even though we use national numbers and we used a different method of modeling, our numbers came out just about exactly the same. So we looked at, at uh, for example, how many surgeries across Canada would be canceled and over a 12-week peak COVID period. And we estimated about 395,000 in Canada with an estimated 11 months to 24 months to catch up on the backlog if we could increase our capacity by 10 to 20 percent, which is exactly the same number of the approximate, um, almost getting close to two years that's estimated in this study for Ontario alone. Comparing ourselves to other countries, we're very similar in terms of the estimates of time to, uh, to deal with the backlog. What is becoming more apparent now, and um, bear in mind that we did this study at the beginning of the pandemic and in the early stages of the pandemic. So now, in retrospect, I think we could more finely tune the differences between countries. Some countries were more hard hit uh, than others. And Canada, so far, has not um, borne the full brunt of what COVID can inflict on um, the healthcare uh, workforce, as well as PPE, as well as our beds. So we may actually be in a better stead. And it's true in my conversations with colleagues around the world, Canada moved sooner, as did Ontario especially, moved sooner to a state of actually reopening and re-engaging the ramp up to have better throughput for elective surgeries. Okay, uh, Dr. Kashavji, I know that you have always said that the urgent surgeries got done, but mm-hmm. how would you estimate uh, still people who ended up with much worse disease or re- very bad outcomes because procedures were postponed? Uh, are there what they call excess deaths? Yeah, you know, that that's a harder thing to manage but uh, and to estimate. But, but what we are seeing is that um, people weren't going to their family doctor. Uh, they were deferring uh, being assessed. So they let symptoms continue or even family doctors were closed. Uh, imaging wasn't as accessible. And so that didn't get done. And so while, for example, in cancer, cases, the wait times in some aspects even went down during COVID because we very clearly knew who was in the system and who needed to be done. And now we sort of got a lull where there isn't the usual inflow into the system because people just weren't going to the hospital, weren't going to their doctor and letting things go. So we're seeing a little bit of that where we're seeing increased complexity and urgency of the patients that we do have. And I don't know 
that we've seen the worst of it yet. Uh, so um, from that point of view, you know, it's very hard to know if someone deferred their cancer and you found the cancer, well, what would it have been like three months ago if this is the first time you've discovered it? Has it been there for a year or is it something that grew quickly in three months that would have been better handled three months ago? That's always going to be very hard to figure out. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example from my circle. And again, I would say it's very hard to know, but uh, someone uh, not particularly old had a massive heart attack and died and she had a heart condition. And then there were people saying, well, um, she had a procedure that was postponed. It was just an ablation, uh, which mm-hmm. I don't know if an ablation would have put off a, a massive heart attack that killed somebody on the spot. But, but what about cases like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that could be an example of, of one that was deferred. And like you said, you don't know the exact details that, that led to the sudden death. Was it a massive heart attack or was it the arrhythmia that the ablation could have uh, prevented a fatal arrhythmia? And, and those are the issues. And those are also very important that, you know, with the first wave of COVID, we were extra cautious, we moved quickly, and we, we prevented the system from being overwhelmed. But it was equally important to advocate for the surgical patients when things were getting better or at any scare about COVID, not to shut down completely again, because we've got to keep the capacity going so that inadvertent delays like that don't occur. Like, are the non-COVID patients being sacrificed or hard done by, by virtue of treating COVID or just COVID readiness? So I, I think the really important thing now is, yes, we need to maintain COVID readiness, and we don't know how big the second wave will be, but we're much more ready for it. We're much more educated about it, but we also can continue to do the important work uh, going forward in, 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 while keeping an eye on how much COVID is in the community. And I think it, it is definitely going to need injection of additional resources. I mean, to run UHNORs for a full extra uh, day a week, that's 20% more funding required to run an operating room and staff and so on. Uh, Let me take a call from Selma in Guelph. Hello, Selma. Good afternoon. This topic is right up our alley, let me tell you. Go ahead. I have a 78-year-old husband who was diagnosed a year ago in November as having a chronic hip that is terrible that should be replaced. Now, in this little city of Guelph, for him to have it done here, he would have to wait at that time a year to 15 months. Well, now this new virus has come in. We're looking at a couple of years. Now, this is just getting terribly bad. By 5 o'clock at night, he can barely walk to his bedroom. What are we supposed to do now? Uh, Have you been told? uh, Have you been given a date at all? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. His orthopedic surgeon isn't even operating yet. Wow. 
Um, I'm sorry to hear that. I mean, that's one of the things that I've been saying is that even when it comes to joint replacement, which are, you know, not considered, it's not life threatening or anything, but it's, it's a, a big problem for people's quality of life. Is he on painkillers or anything like nothing, that? Absolutely nothing. That's probably good. Um, yeah. Um, thank you for sharing that with us, Selma. I mean, I hope that uh, you get some kind of news. I'm going to run that by our doctors. Thanks a lot. It does make you wonder how, what the progression of that is going to be, right? What will be the, well, the end Selma, result? it's Dr. Kishafji here. You know, I, I think, um, you know, in, in the areas of, of medicine like cancer and heart disease, we have triage systems or, or measurements where we know this is a cancer that should be operated on within 28 days, or this is one that can wait 90 days. Oh, and I fully agree with that. But we don't have as good systems for triaging a hip because there's some people, for example, that, you know, I got to have my hip done sometime, maybe, maybe next year, you know, it, it's there, but, but I'm okay. And then there's people like your husband that are really suffering. And I think it would be important to, to go to your orthopedic surgeon and, and explain like you have today that this is not like maybe we should do it sometime and, and maybe refer you to another center. But again, it's not entirely one center's issue. It's that we've never had to triage benign things. Mm-hmm. And even though it's not immediately life-threatening, it, it's, it's terrible for quality of life and, 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 and so on. So now that we have the backlog that COVID did to us, like this is what we're dealing with. And we had to deal with the people who would literally die if we didn't do it. Now, how do we triage people that are suffering but not necessarily dying? And I think there is, there should be. We we need to try to sort out this person needs to have their hip done right away because they can't even get around and they're in terrible pain, whereas this person can wait six months. Right. That's a, that's some very good advice. So, Selma, uh, try to get in touch with, with your surgeon, and maybe he can send you somewhere else. Well, to be fair, when he was first diagnosed almost a year ago, he was told he could get surgery quicker if he left Guelph, went out of town somewhere. Well, that's a good idea, too. But however, how is he to make those doctor's appointments out of town Well, when he has a surgery done and comes back home? Because now it's only day surgery, so he would be sent home in a day, and then he has to go back again to make another appointment to be checked. How is he going to get to another town? Well, that, uh, that can all be arranged for you, and they arrange home care and, and things like that with follow-up at home and, and the proper um, you know, appointments. I mean, those are challenges with with Ontario being big and Canada being a big country. But on the other hand, um, there are all of those systems. So which patient could go home the same day or the next day and and make sure the supports are in place close at home uh, when the patient goes home. And and all the hospitals have those sort of systems. So if it's an out-of-town patient, then they manage it for the out-of-town patient. Yep, Selma, that's a, you know, that he can, yeah, well, he can I will get his, I will talk to his surgeon. However, his office is closed. Oh, 
Um, there should be somebody uh, uh, answering the phone. No, I phoned there yesterday, uh, f- and uh, I got the um, offices closed till September the 8th. Okay, well, that's coming up. So we'll see. Okay, good luck to you, Selma, and thank to your you husband. So Thanks. Thank you. Uh, thank you for uh, talking talking to her. That's difficult. I know that a lot of offices are closed, but the hospital, there should be a way to get to that. Uh, Dr. Martin, uh, is part of the problem that there are 90 hospitals that do most of the surgery in the whole province? The, I mean, <clears throat> the issue is, is that we do have limited resources. Um, and that is true of all of the healthcare system. It's actually true of all of life, isn't it? And it's just really difficult um, because we need to get past these numbers, right, and sort of the sterile research and say, okay, we have patients who are suffering because they have not been able to access their surgery, which truly could impact on their quality of life, perhaps duration of life, but certainly quality of life. And so this, I mean, hearing Thelma's um, story, her husband's story, reminds us that now we need to think about how do we revamp our system? Um, We've never, ever been in this situation before where we have had to cancel elective surgeries for the space of approximately three months. And so we're now, we're also learning too, okay, what is it now that we can do within our limited resources to gain efficiencies? There's some good that can come of this because some, certainly there are some things perhaps in healthcare that we need to reevaluate that are not necessarily life-giving or improving quality of life. And we need to put those aside and prioritize those as low, but we need a new system, I think, or a system that, that better engages patients with their concerns and with their ability to, you know, to to book and be triaged and to give the information that is exactly needed for those triages. Right now we have sort of a system, but it is difficult to navigate that system, I admit. Um, so I really hope that can be our next most effective step is to figure out how to better um, prioritize and involve patients in that whole process. Okay. Uh, let's take another call from Mary Lynn and Lindsay. Hi, Mary Lynn. Hi, how are you? Fine. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, I have a very close friend who was supposed to have tumors removed from both her lungs in January, and she's in the operating room as we speak. Tumors? Um, cancerous tumors? Being a retired nurse, i uh, been pretty concerned uh, has the cancer gone somewhere else? We won't know till the end of the day, but um, it's, it's, I, I don't understand at all. Like, uh, you've got to prioritize, but um, so the decisions to make the backlog bigger, did it come from the government? Did the doctors have any input? Well, it came from the government. The government uh, told hospitals to shut down elective surgery right. and only have the most urgent cases. Yeah, well, I I would say tumors in a lung, both lungs, would be, she's not, she's not even retirement age yet. Well, I'm sorry to anyway, hear that's that. that's my sad story. <laughs> well, uh, hopefully the surgery works out really well for her. I hope so. I'm praying real hard. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you so much. 
Yeah. Uh, Dr. Kashavji, they're an example of a cancer surgery that was postponed. Uh, do you think that it, it's a different triage situation in a small place like Lindsay as opposed to, you know, University Health Network? Yeah, I, you know, I'm a lung surgeon and I do lung cancer surgery. And there wasn't enough information in that story to judge that uh, comment because the lung cancers all got done very promptly, completely cleared our list. And most of the centers that we communicated with in thoracic surgery, which is my specialty, we even had a meeting of all the leaders in the province saying, how are you managing your cancers? Are you getting them through? And so on. So this may have been a unique case, like usually tumors in both lungs uh, might be benign ones that they were watching to see if they changed or they might have been ones that had spread from elsewhere that they're waiting to see if others show up before it makes sense to go and try and remove them. But, uh, you know, having uh, waited several months like that for lung cancer doesn't sort of fit uh, as, you know, it's an unusual story. I I think it's not enough information in that. You know, uh, you do transplants. What is the situation with transplants? So um, during COVID, uh, when, when things start to happen, it was really not safe to use organ donors and wasn't safe to have our teams go in and out of hospitals and risk being infected and bringing infection back and so on. So for about um, two to four weeks, we, we shut down completely, except for very, very urgent transplants, which we did. And then uh, we then uh, gradually opened up. Um, The number of organ donors went down a lot because of people not being in hospitals, people not focusing on organ donation, and so on. Uh, So that really uh, was a problem. And and clearly, um, during the time of COVID, we lost a lot of donors that we didn't use. And therefore, those transplants will never come back, right? They've, they're gone. Having said that, I'm you know, sort of pleased to report that August, we are up to our full rate of transplant. We're the largest transplant program in the country. And, and we, for the first time, got to our full run rate of number of transplants performed in August. So hopefully we'll keep going. And, and, and are you prepared to add the 10% that you're looking to do with all other surgeries, or is that not viable? Well, well, transplant is easy to add because there's no limit on the number of transplants. It's really limited by the number of organ donors. So if we have organs, we're going to do the transplant, and our hospital's commitment is that way. Um, I think the challenge is the non-transplant surgery that doesn't have that privilege. You know, one of the things I was very interested in reading in in this article in the Canadian Medical Journal is talking about the staff. It's one thing if you get funding and you open up ERs, but you're not going to get more highly trained people to do this. And, and the point was that a lot of these people are already burnt out from having been going full tilt during the pandemic. How, how big a factor is that, Dr. Martin? Hmm. That's a great question. I know there's plenty of research ongoing around the rate of staff burnout and just 
you know, the word on the street is that, you know, hey, I'm so tired, and it, and you feel like you've been in overdrive if you've been on the front lines of healthcare during peak um, COVID and, and in the aftermath. Plus, we're always now sort of thinking about what's upcoming. Um, COVID is still looming. The story's not over. And we don't know um, whether or not we're going to have a huge draw again on the healthcare system, you know, hospital by hospital, and whether we whether we're going to run into further need for surgical deferrals. I think it's really important to understand that um, that we have these these bottlenecks. So um, I call them the four S's. So we have staff, and we have stuff, and we have space, and we have systems. And if we have bottlenecks or rate-limiting steps within each one one of those or any one of those, then then the whole system can only flow as fast as the bottleneck, where the bottleneck is. So if our staff are not well-protected and regenerating themselves and asked to put in, you know, hours beyond what they are, um, you know, beyond what are healthy or what they prefer to pre- provide, then we also need to, to reevaluate that because um, we're asking them to do a lot already by having to be extra uh, vigilant and having to use new oh. um, infe- IPC or PPE and infection prevention and control. Okay. So really, yeah. Okay. Dr. Kashavji, what about how's your staff holding up? Yeah, no, I, I think that it has been an issue of burnout, but the other thing is people are looking at the fact that this is something we've never had to deal with uh, and now we have it and and they're stepping up to the plate. You know, it's like, okay, this is what it is and it's going to be like this for a while and and we're here to help patients. So I've been very impressed with with how people and our nurses and and other staff have sort of said, okay, we got to, you know, we're opening Saturdays to do this and we need people to, to work and uh, anesthetists and nurses and surgeons are all, okay, we can do this, you know. So there is a limitation in that, you know, it was the summer and people had some holidays booked and, and we don't have enough staff to go up 20% in rooms. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're sort of projecting going out into uh, next month and so on that can we go to 110% of activity? Can we have some longer days and have some Saturdays? And I, I think people are taking it in their stride and, and are feel better. Like it's less stressful if you know you're well protected and you're dealing with this problem that's been dealt to us. Uh, that's uh, very interesting and it's, it's very good to hear. And uh, is there a problem getting the extra funding you need and, and was money saved from the surgeries that were canceled? You know, um, there, there, it, it is a problem getting the funding. I think one of the issues with the funding models in surgery is, is most of the surgery funding is, is pay for performance. So if you do so many hips, your hospital gets paid for so many hips. So we shut off doing the hips, but we didn't fire our nurses. We redeployed them. They were covering the, you know, uh, health clinics, they were covering the doors, they were covering other wards, the new ICUs we opened. So our run rate of costs continued. You know, it's not like we could shut down the plant completely, and yet our revenues for surgery stopped because our deliverables stopped. So that is something that has to be dealt with. It's, it's pretty clear. 
Okay. Well, uh, let's hope you deal with this. And just before we go, Dr. Kashavji, anything you want to leave us with on this? No, I'm, I'm really glad you're covering this. And, and, you know, we had sort of looked at one is how do we slow down? What do we slow down with? And then how do we pick up again? And, and I think we've done it in a, a thoughtful way, but the backlog is, is there and it's looming. And I don't like in the heat of COVID, it was okay to postpone people with benign conditions, but it's not okay to add a year wait time onto a hip or things like that. So I do think we in the system have to figure out a way to address those patients. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Shaf Kashavji, the Surgeon-in-Chief at the University Health Network and the Director of the Toronto Lung Transplant Program, and Dr. Janet Martin at the Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry at Western University. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thanks, Louis. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.